Harvard Divinity School. Set It Off Symposium, introducing the foundations of a movement to end the dehumanization, destruction, and death dealing of poor black women in America, April 26, 2022. ceremony to begin this sacred gathering. I will lead us in the ritual of libation. Libation is a ritual found in many cultures and religions around the world. I come to it through the African tradition and my ancestral lineage 
trace back to West Africa. Given that today is the day that Harvard University has released this report detailing its history and legacy of the enslavement of African and indigenous people, it is profoundly appropriate that we engage in this ceremony on this day. It's divinely ordered. For those who are not familiar with libation, it is a sacred practice that allows us to honor our ancestors who came before us, honor their work, their wisdom, and their love, recognizing in the spirit of the West African principle of Sankofa that we cannot move forward wisely into the future without honoring and learning from the past. So we invite participants to share a name of an ancestor they carry with them that they want to honor. And after each name, we pour water into the earth. And since we're inside, we'll pour water into this plant. And then we'll say, Ashe, after the name. Ashe is a word of affirmation from the West African tradition similar to the word amen. This evening, we are here to honor the foremothers who came before us who were womanist theologians and warriors who paved the way for this powerful set it off movement. But before we begin, I want to share an offering about one of our foremothers. In her book, Katie's Canon, Womanism and the Soul of the Black Community. The late Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, regarded as the founding mother of womanist theology, describes womanism as the, quote, new gatekeeper in her land of counterpain. She identifies her grandmother, Rosa Cornelia White Lytle, as her first gatekeeper in the land of counterpain. This is what she shares about her grandmother, Rosa. She says, she was always available with salves, hot towels and liniments to cure physical aches and spiritual ills. As a charismatic healer, Grandma Rosie's practice consisted of diagnosis, treatment and prevention in the maintenance of overall wholeness Many days my soul struggled with whether to go to school or to stay home and be healed from the injuries the world inflicted unknowingly." End quote. Her grandmother was her medicine, her healer, her covering and protective shield against the cruel elements of the sick world. Some of the essays in Cannon's Canon were written while she was here at Harvard Divinity School as a woman's research associate in Christian social ethics. So it is befitting that we begin this sacred ceremony and the calling of our ancestral Africana womanist foremothers by honoring Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon. So we call her name, and as I call her name, I invite you to say, Ashe. Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon. Ashe.
Now I invite you to call in the names of those women who are your counterpain, your medicine, your salve protecting you from this cruel world. They can be women you knew personally or who are a part of the greater kinship of womanists. Those who were our personal counterpain and those who served as the counterpain for our people. Willie G. Morris. I should. Hilda Brown Robertson. I should. Mima Martin. I should. Ella Baker. Shirley Chisholm. women who are at the bottom of the ocean. And one last name. Marion Kramer. As we move through this symposium and through the work, may we carry the memories, the love, the struggles, the triumphs of all of these precious black women. Ashe. Tonight, we're going to have two special guests to join us to be in conversation with me about the film, Set It Off. How many of you had the opportunity to see it? Be honest. All right. And so tonight, we're going to discuss how 25 years later, the film came out on November 6, 1996. So last year was the 25th anniversary. We're going to discuss how this film, 25 years later, is still relevant and the urgent call that that film gives us in terms of the work we need to do with, because I want to be very clear, I'm not doing anything for poor black women. We're doing this together. This is a movement for all of us, because as it has been said many times by Fannie Lou Hamer and many others, none of us are free until black women are free. And so tonight I want to welcome, and you will see them come up after we see a video, Tonight we have in our midst one of my leaders, a woman who 
has been on the forefront of this work for over 50 years. She don't even look that old, she look good. But she has been working, she's a veteran, she served this country, but when she came back, it didn't have any room for her. And so she's been on the forefront of this country fighting on behalf of those who are homeless. She herself was homeless, she'll tell you about it. Um, and she'll tell you about this fight um, that is happening even right here in Massachusetts. So tonight we wanna welcome uh, Reverend Savina Martin. And Reverend Savina Martin, she's the Executive Director for the Hawthorne Youth and Community Center and Director of Youth Opportunity Development at Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. And 2021, excuse me, I'm reading Miranda's bio, y'all. I'm looking at the other thing. Minister Savina was born and raised in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and she is a United States Army veteran. She is a lifelong local and statewide and national activist. She's been active since the 1980s. She was the president of the Greater Boston Chapter of the Union of the Homeless. She is a founding member of Wings Incorporated, a Roxbury group for women recovering from substance abuse and pending unification of their children in the foster care system, which opened in 1993. She serves on the leadership and educational team at the Cairo Center for Religion, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary. And she is a member of the National Welfare Rights Union. In 2015, she started the Clergy Council of the National Union of the Homeless. She is currently one of the three tri-chairs with the Massachusetts Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival. She has a Master's of Science degree in Human Services and a Doctorate in Human Letters from the College of Our Lady of the Elms. And this, this coming fall, she will be headed to seminary at Boston University. And she is on our way, but uh, Representative Liz Miranda will be joining us. She is the state representative for the 5th Suffolk District of uh, Massachusetts. That includes Roxbury and Dorchester. And she has a lifelong home here that has helped to shape who she is today. In 2017, Liz lost her 28-year-old brother, Michael Miranda, to gun violence. And after her decades-long advocacy for gun violence prevention, losing her brother was a catalyst in her entrance to electoral politics. And so tonight you will hear her talk about her fight to make sure that they don't build a $50 million prison here in Boston. And y'all know who is going in-house, poor black women. So we'll hear from her tonight when she comes, but you're gonna see a video now of someone who's also one of my leaders and one of the main reasons why I am very committed to this fight of making sure that poor black women are liberated. And I didn't say this when we started, but I want you to see these women who are here on this front. And I want you to see this woman right in the very front. That is my grandmother, Willie G. Morris. And so you'll hear me talk more about her later on tonight, but I need you to understand, even if y'all don't think I do a good job tonight, I want her to be pleased. Because she was a woman who this nation forgot but I won't forget her. And I'm gonna make sure the world don't forget other women like her and other women who have helped to build this nation. But when they die, they didn't have anything to show for it. So I want you to see this video of one of uh, the women who I, I call her a saint in Set It Off movement. And then we'll have our panel to come up and we'll begin our discussion. Hey Pam. Hi. William Barber. All right. Barber. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for um, letting us come. Hi, my name is Pamela Roach. I'm from Lowndes County, Alabama. And I live in a mobile home with my two kids. Sorry. 
They charged me over hundred and fourteen thousand dollars on a mobile home. They're falling apart, and then all animal coming in my house, possum, that trap, that trap, uh, four possum in my house, cats and stuff. And I got raw sewage. I don't have no no money on power. Pamela let us come in her house courageously. It was hard. She said, I want the nation maybe to help somebody else. A predatory lender made her pay $120,000 for a single white house that she's still paying for. She's in the Poor People's Campaign. She said, I have no place else to go but fight. I feel bad because I don't have stuff to give my children. Mm -hmm. I'm paying all these bills, and they need school clothes and stuff. They be asking me for I can't give it to them. Do you see that somebody that would take advantage of a poor family yeah, as criminal? Yeah, it was sick. Yes, it's, like it's, it's a criminal. It's criminal. Yes, they treated us wrong. Mm-hmm. Eternal God who loves justice, mercy, and grace. We thank you today for Pamela, mm-hmm. her strength, her family. We stand against this kind of oppression and wrong. And we thank you for giving her the courage by your spirit to say, I'll no longer be quiet or silent or in hiding. Before we begin the panel discussion, I want you to know that Pamela died in 2020 from complications of COVID-19. But she died long before that. She died from the pandemic of white supremacy and colonialism. So here we had a sister right here in our country. We often look to third world countries and say that they have it bad and there's deep poverty, but right in our backyard, we have someone who has raw sewage in their front yard As you heard her say, she had possum in her house. So I would ask you as we're talking tonight to just reflect on the things that you have seen in this country. Think about the ways that we have so many people in the richest country in the world living in poverty. Y'all just saw recently somebody bought Twitter. For how much? Y'all said it, say it, go ahead and say it. $44 billion. $44 billion, but how many people in this country don't even have $400 to take care of themselves? So I say that because we're here at HDS tonight. We're at Harvard. We have access to resources and power. How are we using that to ensure that no one is left behind? And so tonight I'm glad to have Reverend Savina to talk with me briefly. Because I want us to just have a a conversation tonight, and I want you to check in on it. Because, Reverend Savina, I want you to tell the audience tonight how America abandoned you after you fought and gave all of your youth, and uh, not youth, but your, your, your teen, your years, your younger years to this nation. And when you came back, they left you out. Please tell us tonight about you and why tonight is so important to you as we are looking to launch Set It Off. Yes, 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 yes. Well, first let me say thank you for inviting me here tonight. And Reverend Erica, I love you. Thank you. I think of you all the time, and I see what you're doing. 
This world needs you. They need right us all. Now. They need us all. We need us all. Ashe. Ashe. I just want to honor. And we have to do that with each other. The unsung heroes, the women whose names were mentioned here today, some that we didn't even know. But I could tell you my family's trek, some of who survived the Middle Passage, uh, I want to say descended upon, found themselves here in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1868. The story goes in my family that my grandmother could have been the youngest one. There was no record. This is the thread through our families, and we all know that we come from families that pass down stories. And my grandmother, because we're talking about grandmothers tonight, and I feel this, the story goes that my grandmother could have been the child underneath her mother's hoop skirt. That's all I know. They have their shipping papers coming in from Canada, uh, St. John's, New Brunswick, and... Uh, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia. So they, they came here to Massachusetts Bay Colony. I come from a family that were activists. My great-great-grand-uncle Charles Henry Sullivan's papers, it took 10 years to authenticate and curate uh, the family's papers that are now housed at Smithsonian. Uh, Anacostia Museum in Washington, D.C. So my grandmother, Frances Sullivan, fought a good fight, a fight to, in, in her wringing of her hands, right, in the sewing and stitching my red velvet dress so I could wear to kindergarten, right, with the three pearl buttons to keep us understanding that everything was okay. So I just had to, to frame that. I had to frame that because my grandmother, Frances Sullivan, is with me. She's with me. And um, so my first memory of things not going right, that something was wrong, was when I my mother put the key in the door and I walked in. I said, oh, this stove is so cute, it's so small. As the story goes in the family, we were one of the first families whose homes were stolen through redlining and was placed in the Orchard Park housing development. This was the beginning. And, and, and when I think about my mother, I, always, I often think about Pricola. Remember Pricola? In the bluest eyes and everything she witnessed. I often think of my mother putting the key in that door and feeling like now she's isolated from her family, right? The shame, because we know what the projects brings, right? That was the beginning of her mental decline. And the second critical incident 
And I'm not here to talk about, just talk about me. I want you to understand that the context that helped to shape me was a community of women, black women, who fought and died from the social determinants and the conditions in the community, whether it was in food insecurity, right, whether it was fighting the social workers who would come into your house and, and, and invade and look in your refrigerators and that, all of that. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but understand I'm speaking about a community of black women that helped to raise me. So the second critical incident that I can remember was the assassination of Dr. King. My mother, feisty and bold, went outside to look for my brothers. And as I looked out of the window, now remember, I'm a, I'm a black woman, a daughter, a mother, an aunt, a sister, right? We have the context of our communities and we know that we feel things. So I want us to feel the texture. I want us to smell, use all of our senses as I'm saying this, right? So imagine a young child looking out of her window. The black and white television is saying a Negro man. I'm trying to understand what that is. Mother is outside, and I'm looking because I'm seeing blue, these men with blue, and these men with baton, uh, batons. And across the street in formation was the Army National Guard. I didn't know what that was. I was saying, oh, the soldiers. And my mother went toe to toe, bold, assured, defiant, looking the policeman in the face and I could see her head going. Several of the police officers bent down to pick up some stones. And I felt my heart in my throat, so I sensed fear. Although nothing had happened at that point, but I sensed fear and I screamed. I believe that I screamed so loud that my mother heard me through the window and she turned around in slow motion. And the next thing I knew, she was coming in the house and locking that door with the chain. But she was about to set it off. <laughs> no, my mother. She was about to set it off. Um, and tell so us how the, you have set it off. OK, so 20 years later, so now here we are, the social upheavals, urban uprisings, assassination of Dr. King, and we know what happened. The communities were left blight, blighted. Vacant lots were everywhere. That, that, now that makes me think of the rap song. <laughs> Broken glass everywhere as, we, as the years went by, right? And our kids had nothing to look at but the liquor stores on every corner, some of our children. But anyway, so here we are with the assassination of Dr. King. And that was the spark that lit and launched where I am today, I truly believe. So 20 years later, I was standing at a podium 
This is after the military. I went into the military, stayed, got my dose of, of trauma, and ran, right? I was pregnant. I had my son. I was beat, beaten down, and I went directly from the hospital, from the hospital into a shelter, and I stayed there for 13 months and finally got an apartment. But while I was in the shelter, I started writing the mayor. And I said to the shelter's providers, I said, can I use, can I use the, the typewriter? This is how far back we're going. There's no cell phone. Can I use the typewriter? Yes, you can. It's in the basement. And I was in the basement, typing away, typing away, writing the mayor saying, I need to find an apartment. I need an apartment right now for me and my son. And I wrote them several times, and the letters that I received back really had no solution. Right? There was no solution. It, it stated that we may have some vouchers available. Um, I forget what it was called during that time. Seven, I forget what it was called, uh, the state vouchers. And I think this was besides the Section 8 voucher. So <clears throat> I did get an apartment with my son. And I started volunteering on a domestic violence hotline. And I received a call one day. And they said, Sabina, you should go to this meeting in Cambridge. And I said, OK, fine, I'll go. I get to the meeting, and this towering gentleman from Philadelphia, his name was Chris Grohl, and he was speaking about he was on a national tour to start galvanizing folks around issues of poverty, particularly homelessness in the face of neoliberalism, right? Now we're seeing um, the most visible expression of homelessness, of poverty, which is homelessness, right? People are sleeping in the subways in the, in the richest country in the world, on grates. He was organizing around this issue. I had started feeding folks, because of my lived experience, feeding homeless men in downtown Boston sandwiches. So when I heard this man talking, I said, he's talking my language. And before I knew it, this, everything went very fast. Everything went very fast. And before I knew it, we were organizing all around Massachusetts, the Cape area, downtown Massachusetts. And finally, and I wish we had this on a short film, but next time, and finally, some of our, some more folks came in from Philadelphia, and we held our founding convention in 1988. I want to say 88 or 86. In the mid-80s, right here at Harvard School of Divinity. Cornell West was here at that time. He marched with us. We held our founding conve uh, convention. And at that particular time, I was, uh, uh, nominated as president of the Greater Boston Union of the Homeless. Mm -hmm. uh, within two or three years, we had organized hundreds of thousands of homeless men and women who were ready to set it off. We came up with campaigns during that time to take over abandoned housing, and we did. 
You should Google us, look at the Wikipedia, and you'll learn a little bit more of that history of the National Union of the Homeless. We launched an illegal housing campaign where we were taking over abandoned housing. By 1989, five women and myself in the community of Roxbury set it off. Mm-hmm. Every time we took over an abandoned building and every time we got arrested, we kept going in. We kept going back. We kept tearing the boards off. It was five black women and myself. Some of the women were coming out of prison. Some of the women were recovering from substance abuse. But all of us were fighting because we knew we were one paycheck away or one emergency away from being homeless, sick, and suffering again. And we fought. We raised funds Mm -hmm. and we refurbished that house that is still providing housing for women. It's, and I'm gonna stop here, it's called the Women's Institute for New Growth and Support, and it's housed hundreds of women over 38 years. But that's one house. That's one house, and I wanna be clear. So I'm thankful for the victories and the things that have happened that you all have produced, but I don't want it to, to, to sound like it's been all good. I, I, need, oh, no. us to, I need it to be oh, very no. clear. And even as you are sharing your story of the work that you've done, what, what pushed you? So in this film, we see and set it off, these women were impacted by police brutality. They were impacted by being low-wage workers. They were impacted by sex trafficking. They were impacted by living in slum housing, where they basically didn't have access to the, the, the clean air, as we saw a part of, in the movie. They were living by plants that pushed, you know, produced out chemicals and other things. And so what we see in that film is still what we see now. So I would love to hear more from you. Actually, what is it that you have seen? Like, like I think a lot of times in this country, we move straight to like, how are we repairing? How are we, you know, putting bandages on things? But we need to begin to reckon. And that, that's why I'm here tonight. I want us to begin to reckon with the fact of what is actually happening. Because we saw with Pamela oh, and we I didn't see the whole Pamela. story. And if you all would look on 60 Minutes, there is a, a segment about her, Pamela Rush. But but I want to be very clear tonight, because you in the room with HDS. You in the room with the future prophets and leaders and right. theologians in the world. And I don't want them going back out just saying, oh yeah, everything is good. We done repaired the breaches and we can go home. Oh, no. no, I want them to know tonight oh, no. that in this country, the divided states of America, that you have people dying, black women dying. You and I are in the Poor People's Campaign and we have seen so I want you to just kind of like make it plain, make it very clear to folks tonight what you've seen and even what you have experienced. Oh my Lord. Um, so I've traveled all over the country. I've traveled all over the country as far as uh, the riverbanks of uh, Arizona. Uh, there was a yellow school bus and families were living in it with their dogs, right? In a yellow school bus in the richest country in the world. Now, I remember Pamela Rush because that that was our 2019 Congress in Washington, D.C., and I remember when she had left on the bus to go to the state capitol to that meeting. I remember that day clearly. Pamela is talking about those five interlocking injustices Mm -hmm. that we're suffering from right now, and Mm -hmm. we're fighting. We're fighting against. Mm 
which is, which is the systems, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 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 the systemic poverty, right? Systemic racism and everything that lies inside of systemic racism, prison, everything. Just think, systemic poverty, systemic racism, ecological devastation, the denial of healthcare, the military industrial complex, militarism, right? And then the distorted moral narrative of Christian nationalism that deems to blame us for our own poverty. The book of Isaiah, what is it? Isaiah one through three mm -hmm. that talks about how dare you legislate these laws and policies that kill us. So yes, I have not only been a witness to tragedy, to poverty, to all of these systems and constructs, but I have uh, uh, experienced as a black woman, if you wanna go there, my sister, who I called her name, Dominga Martin, had five children, trying to survive, had just opened up her second business was missing all night. I called the police all night long. Where is my sister? Is she sick? We called the hospitals. I called my aunt. I called my mom. Called my brothers. Where is she? She's not home. She's, she was at her you know, place of business. She had a beautiful lingerie store, boot store, uh, in the Jamaica Plain area of Boston. Was missing all night. I called my nieces that were her daughters. I woke up just feeling something was wrong, woke up in a cold sweat, went to her store, broke in her store. After I had called the police several times, the police did not show up. And finally, the police showed up when I got on the payphone and said there's a white woman being beaten. That's the only way the police came. Now, me and her daughters were outside the store. My nephews were coming. She'd been missing all night. And we broke the glass window, cut my, my niece. Of course, she had to go to the hospital. I ran inside the store. It was really dark. Knocked down all of the shoe racks. And the last shoe rack did not go up, fall all the way to the ground. And I looked down, and there was my sister. She had been stabbed to death. Oh. Now, this is if we want to get down this way, let's get down this way. Because this is what happens. I'm thinking of... Miss Brianna Taylor now. Thinking of Brianna Taylor. I'm thinking of all of the black women who have died uh, uh, untimely and unnecessary deaths. And in order for us to have that, that shift that everything's not okay, we have to dig down deep in order to come back up. We have to go to the past to come back to the future yeah. to fight. We need to continue to build a movement and set it off in this country. There has, has to be our biblical scholars, our, our academia, our activists, our labor unions. We have to come together across lines of division and organize and hold these elected officials accountable and dismantle these policies or we will continue to die unnecessary deaths, be one paycheck away from homelessness, one emergency away from homelessness, destitute. Yeah. We, I, I mean, what more can I say?
There's a lot more you could say, because I know I could. But I think at the core of what I, what I want to say, and, and, and as we are coming to the, the time of our panel, I, I, you know, I want to just say to you, for one, I thank you. I want to publicly acknowledge you. As I introduced you, I talked to you about the work you have been doing. But I want to just publicly like thank you and honor you for the ways that you have trailblazed in this work of justice. And I don't say that to, to honor you like as this is a... a, a, a something to receive an honor or noble because you shouldn't have to do this shit. Because you shouldn't have to live in a country where you basically have to fight to basically live. And so I say that as, as, as you know, my, my, my spirit is being full tonight because even today, and Dean Melissa talked about it, like they released a report today that Harvard like knows like they had ties with slavery. I, it, it wasn't no new knowledge, I mean the research just came out, but I'm clearly sure they have known this for a long time uh, because this institution was built off of the back, backs of enslaved people, um, not just Africans, but even Native uh, American people. And so, you know, this country just continues to deny the things that have been done, but, but I'm grateful that you have been ringing the alarm. You have been shouting to the mountaintop, saying what is happening, but you should be tired. I'm exhausted. Because I've only been in this, this work of organizing now for going on a little over 15 years. And I'm telling you, I'm like Fannie Lou. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's why I'm ready to set this shit off. Excuse my French, y'all. Y'all know who I am if you're my friend. I'm ready to set it off because the reason why I want to know that, oh, the chair want to set it off too. But the reason why I want to do it is because what I understand is we continue to put band-aids on this. And, and I want to name this today because I was at an event here at Harvard on Saturday and they kept applauding the fact that Justice Katanji Brown Jackson had been appointed. They kept applauding that Kamala Harris is the vice president. But what I wanna be clear about, just because they have been put into these positions, it has not done a damn thing for poor black women in this country. Because representation in this country does nothing because all it does is make the people in power make, feel, make them feel like they've done something but they don't systemically change anything. And so I'm very clear tonight, Queen Mother, and I, and I told you I came here with an urgency because I feel this every day, more and more, you said it, Breonna Taylor. I'm like, how many more Breonna Taylors we gonna have? You know, how many more incidents are we gonna have in this country? So you've been on this wall. So that's why I'm here tonight, like we gotta build a movement. And we don't need to build it with other people speaking for us other people trying to be saviors for us. We need to build it because folks like you have the knowledge. You are, as Ella Baker talked about, an organic intellectual. And so I'm really grateful for the ways that you have been on the forefront. But I want you to just, just say tonight, even in what you're seeing in this world, like, like, like what, what we got to do? Like, what is it that you think has to really happen in order for us to shift? Because I'm tired. In 2020, when the uprisings happened, everybody was throwing money at organizations. Everything was, you know, oh, Black Lives Matter. But 2021, shit became business as usual. And most of our black lives really don't matter. Yeah. I, and so what, what, where do we go, Queen Mother? As we see these women and set it off, they knew that they were going to risk it all. They ended up, if you've seen the film, and if you ain't seen it, I'm about to spoil it for you, they were willing to go all the way to being killed because they said either I'm going to die getting free. That's what they said. They said they were going to do it. Come on, Representative. You, you late, but come on in here. Come on in here, Queen. <laughs> this is Liz Miranda. 
You good, Queen. We are talking about what, what set it off. And so we're talking about what do we do right now? Because even as she, you know, will mention tonight about this prison they want to build, what we see is each day, every day, excuse me, they are building things to lock us up, if it not be in prisons. They locking us up in the ghettos. That's true. So, so I would love to hear, and maybe I will, I will pitch this to you. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad that you were able uh, to join us. And so we're just talking right now about the plight of poor black women. And we're talking about what, what are the ways that we need to really like set it off, like really be about making things happen because we cannot continue to just pontificate and continue to just have convenings like this. We got to do something. And so that's why you in office and I'm glad you in there. So tell us what <laughs> we too. need to do and how we can set it off. That was good. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. You know, sorry, I'm, oops. See, child, these chairs is not working with us. Harvard got a whole lot of money. Let me mess up my leg. <laughs> yeah, I know, I spent a lot of time on this campus. Uh, uh, so I'm state rep Liz Miranda and part of the reason why I'm late today is we're actually in budget week. Um, and just moments ago, Something dope just happened. We just made uh, prison phone calls free in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Okay. And it took a black woman to get it done. That's right. So, um, super excited that I am a state representative. Yes. I've been a state rep in Massachusetts for three years, three months, and 21 days. <laughs> and I count every day because it's that type of stuff. Um, but I've been a black woman from Roxbury for 41 years. And so I really come to this work and I come to this panel uh, because I am the daughter of a young immigrant woman from the islands of Cabo Verde, which is on the west coast of Africa. And I was born in 1980 on Dudley Street um, in the Dudley Triangle. And if you don't know anything about that neighborhood or Roxbury, um, there's two movies and a book about my neighborhood. One, the, one of the movies is called Holding Ground. The, the other movie is called Gaining Ground. And the book is called Streets of Hope because literally my neighborhood was the trash bin of Boston. And in the 80s, residents, some Puerto Ricans that were coming from the island, moving to the south end of Boston, African-Americans that had moved from the south, Cape Verdeans who were coming, and other people from the Caribbean, uh, namely islands like Jamaica, Barbados, and Trinidad, all were moving to a community that had been largely Irish and Italian. And after forced busing, people, there was a lot of white flight in Boston. And so not all the people went uh, quietly. Uh, there was a lot of arson for profit. There was a lot of redlining. And literally, I was born in this place that was um, deemed like the poorest census block in the Commonwealth, right? And um, that was the bad news. The good news is that when you're in community with people who love you and who work hard, yes. you don't know you're poor and you don't know that anything is different. Um, I didn't really realize that I was poor and the daughter of a teen immigrant woman and then an incarcerated individual until I got to campus of Wellesley. And then I realized that, oh shit, like you're black and your mom's a doctor and your dad's a lawyer, great. Uh, you wanna know what my dad does, uh, let me make something up. And I made something up until I couldn't make it anymore. And then by the time I graduated, I just started telling people the truth. I was like, well, I'm here and I'm still here and I'm graduating with you, so I might as well tell you. But being a part of the state house is, is a really unique experience. And I was really happy that you 
I, I met you and reached out to, we also soror, so I wrote out Del Sigma Theta, um, and the, I thought about the movie Set It Off and how much being in political office is kind of my weapon of choice. Mm -hmm. um, black women are often seen as a shield and a target. Um, when you think about the Democratic Party, you think about even politics, uh, black women, the average voter is like a 66-year-old black grandmother, right? Um, carrying her community, carrying her family, carrying yeah. the party, yes. carrying everyone else, yet we're still the most disrespected under-resourced uh, group of people on the planet, right? That's right. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about my experience, but I did take notes, and I know Savina, Sister Savina and me work a lot together in our community, but I'm one of five. And so when you think of Massachusetts, how many people think we're a very liberal state? Like pretty much like we elect Warren and Markey, right? What's up? Right? We're pretty, pretty blue and liberal. But the point is that in this state, uh, one of the first in the country to be sort of have a democratic, actually be first, like a democratic government that led basically the formation of the 13 colonies, there's only five black women. And we just got one a month ago, Senator Lydia Edwards. Um, but there's Rep Tyler, Rep Elugardo, myself. Um, and Rep. Brandy Fluker Oakley. And when I ran in 2018, there was only one. So I guess there's 400% growth, and that's progress. But five black women out of 200 legislators, does someone know math? What's the percentage of that? Two point what? 2.5%. And across the country, black women make up only 4.5% of state legislatures. Uh, it's still mainly dominated by white, cisgendered, suburban, moderate uh, men. That's what our government usually is based on. So if you're of difference, um, you don't always fit. So I'm very proud to be one in five. And then when I look at all black and Latino and Asian uh, folks in the state house, we're about 20. So 20 out of 200. Um, but it's exhausting, right? Yeah. And the, the issues that we work on, whether it's fighting hunger, gun violence prevention, ending mass incarceration, or the, the systematic impact of that in a state that thinks it doesn't have a problem, you can imagine what that's like. Um, and so I'll end by saying that when Set It Off came out, I was 16. And I actually think the late 90s were some of the best black films ever, right? Um, I look at my age, I'm 40, 41 now, and I think about how many times I watch movies like Set It Off over and over again because they remind me of who I am and who I come from, right? Um, and I think about the movie and it was kind of like part waiting to exhale, uh, part like a black version of Thelma Louise, right? The big adventure. And then like a girls in the hood, right? You think yeah. about what Boys in the Hood did, iconic uh, black film about growing up male in South Central LA that when you looked at Frankie and her homies, um, everyone had a place. And for me, the person in that story that I thought a lot about was Stoney. Um, one, because I just lost my brother four years ago to gun violence, and it was actually the reason I ran for office, because I was like, after three months of being in intense grief and having basically lost people every year of my life since I was 18, I was like, wait a minute, I couldn't even save my little brother, 
here I was, I went to Wellesley, and then I went to graduate school, and then I came back to the hood. How admirable, right? Came back to save my people, invest in young people, and, and I'd work with hundreds of young people, um, giving them what people gave me. Like, even in a hopeless place, I was loved, I was showered, I was supported, I was mentored, I was given opportunities that my mother could never dream of, right? Mm -hmm. And when my brother died, I thought about this, this idea of a black girl's redemption or like the black girl's sort of plight to not only survive but to thrive. And in the theme in the film, I thought a lot about it and I rewatched it again yes. uh, so I could feel reconnected to her. Because you know, Jada been out here with the red table. That's so right. it's been a little, <laughs> it's a little bit hard sometimes to to understand her identity and growth because she's so much, you know, she's Jada Pinkett Smith, but to think about, and Queen Latifah's Queen Latifah, but to yeah. think about who they were 25 years ago is really yeah. important. So yeah. your question is incredibly important. Sometimes it feels um, that we're running against the tide and we have no more time. And um, as black women, we tend to be doing this work righteously and still angry and still exhausted about the fact that we are still in 2022 having to um, essentially claim our humanity, mm -hmm. right? That we are deserving of peace, of love, of success, achievement, grace, redemption, mercy, all the things that we, we hope we provide uh, to human nature it seems that regardless of whether you're a state representative or you're another hood girl whose rainbow isn't enough, that you are still in the communities asking to be seen as just human and worthy. And so thank you for doing the conversation. Yes. I'm happy to be here. And thank you guys for spending your night with us. That's it. Thank you. So this is, this is one question I want to ask both of you. So we're at a divinity school. Mm -hmm. And so you all have both named. We have the legislator and we also have movement. Um, so we have various places that are, you know, black, you know, poor black women are involved in. I want to bring in the church, mm -hmm. in particular, the black church. Yeah. Because, you know, I want to take or hear from the <laughs> two of you in the ways that you see how or how do you see that poor black women are actually you know, being supported and or not being supported, I want to know just what have you seen from the faith perspective? Because in the film, there is no mentioning of religion. Mm -hmm. Not one time they didn't reference God or higher power or source. And so what I argue in my project uh, for the Religion and Public Life program is that these women had a spirituality of sisterhood. Uh, they were sticking together, making ways out of no way which black women we have to do because we don't have anybody else. But I would love to just talk about the church and hear from you. How do you feel the church? How do they handle poor black women? What have you seen from your various areas? We'll start with you. I just want to just, just let me read this little, a, a couple of sentences. Okay. And as we know, well, let me start with Dr. King. I, uh, I know he said that it would be a tragedy if we turn back now. And mm -hmm. this is spinning off the first part of the conversation that we had mm -hmm. as you were ending and you were asking, what do we need to go or where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. And I thought about the quote from Dr. King when he said, it would be a tragedy if we turn back now. So that's mm -hmm. one thing, we've got to keep going. We must keep going, mm -hmm. right? 
And throughout his, but throughout history, I mean, we can go as far back as slavery when you know we were uh, congregating and humming our pain, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And and we can move into the civil rights movement, uh, and we can also say that black women have played major roles mm -hmm. in the church, mm -hmm. right? Over history, over the the, the the centuries, and okay, so. Black women have a long and intricate history with the church. Mm -hmm. Women making up 70 to 90% of black congregations yes. have always found the institution of the church a place of refuge, of solace and hope. As far back as African-American history begins, during a time when their bodies were bound by violence of slavery, like you opened up and read, the poem, black women gathered to worship communally a God who gave freedom and liberation and the salvific power of Christ. The civil rights movement, a movement that is instructively bound to the African-American church was primarily a movement of black women. Yeah which they forgot too, because if you all check out Reverend, uh, excuse me, not Reverend, Dr. Carrie Day's book called Unfinished Business, right, uh, Black Women um, and the Black Church in America, she talks about how like poor Black women in particular were marginalized even in the Black church space. Yes. Um, and I would even bring into the conversation Fannie Lou Hamer, who was one of, another saint of Set It Off Movement <laughs> and one of my patron saints, they talked about her. Even it's been known that Dr. King and other folks criticized her because she was a poor woman. She was a sharecropper from Ruleville. They said she was uneducated and that she couldn't talk properly. But it's so interesting, if you all know the record, she was the one that actually spoke at the Democratic National Convention in 1964. Uh, um, and Lyndon Bain Johnson was so scared of her speaking that he interrupted her speech to, because folks thought he was going to announce his vice president uh, candidate. But he just got on there saying something about, oh, yeah, we've, we've made some moves on something. I can't remember verbatim. But ultimately, he didn't want the country to see this poor black woman telling her story. So, so I say this in the sense of I hear when we say the, the civil rights movement, yes, it has always been the black women who have led it. But what has the black church done lately for poor black women? You know, it's so interesting. So it's a little bit about my background. So I grew up Catholic, like many, um, Cape Verde was no different after being colonized by the Portuguese. You know, there's a whole colonial colonial rule in Africa where all these countries were divvied up between the Dutch, the British, uh, the Portuguese. Uh, um, and one of the things that came is like when I grew up in, in this Catholic faith, uh, oftentimes I didn't see women, right? And so I grew in that faith really quietly. And when I was 16, um, something happened to me, which was that I grew up in this neighborhood that had a lot of black immigrants. And I remember at 16 being vividly told by one of my other Cape Verdean friends, what are you doing hanging around with those ends in Orchard Park? And I remember looking at her and she was darker than me. And I was like, well, what do you mean? These are our neighbors, our friends, we go to school with them. But no, we're different, like we're different. We're different because our parents uh, work in factories, they don't live in the projects. You know, she went through a list of things. And I'm saying that because that's when I made the conscious decision to sort of look at other faith uh, pieces because mm -hmm. I'm leading to the space of like what I believe the black church, and I'm a member of Morning Star Church now, Christian church, one of the largest black churches here in Boston. 
And I was incredibly surprised when the bishop a month ago stopped service to talk about that the black church has really become a place of condemnation. You're good enough to go to church unless you're queer. <laughs> you know, he was making the, the, the connection that if you're a poor black woman or if you're an immigrant woman or you're a woman who's had challenges, incarceration, drug addiction, if you've had multiple children out of wedlock, all these things, has the church been a place of refuge for you? And he argued that it has not. And he said to look around and see why our pews were empty, particularly after COVID-19 and the multiple pandemics we went through, mm -hmm. going through a pandemic of public health proportions, you know, but also housing, yeah. economic divide. And I'm going to take a word from, um, from Ayanna Presley, my sister, Congresswoman, a racial awakening. I was saying reckoning, and then I was like, what's been reckoned? Nothing really, right? Nothing. So a racial awakening all at the same time, and yet the churches are largely empty. And I think part of it, actually not I think, I know it's because that the church has been fundamentally built um, by black women, but there's also this layer of respectability. But who, what, who, who's black enough or who's righteous enough or who's, who's got the picket fence and the two kids and they go to church every Sunday? Is that the person that deserves grace and mercy? Is that the person that's going to be saved? You know, God forbid you have other blemishes mm -hmm. on your, your life story, which, you know, Jesus had blemishes too. Um, but the idea is that, like, the church has, has built itself, I think, part of this respectability Politics, And I just share that because I believe that the role of government in the church uh, is profound. For example, if you just took the top five black churches in Boston that are the biggest, that's a huge percentage of our black population uh, that are congregants. And if they chose to do the work that they say that they do around social justice, around um, ending mass incarceration or working and birthing justice, I work a lot on maternal health and birthing justice, another place where Massachusetts feels like they do nothing wrong. The idea is that we could literally show up for ourselves and redefine what is public policy uh, very quickly because we have a lot of the voters, right? We have the juice, we have the power. But um, today, I believe it's a missed opportunity because it's become a, a space of condemnation. A place that has worked, though, the one, one organization that I do want to shout out is the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization. Um, so that's a collective of faith entities yes. that are at the front line of almost every issue. You know, they're not afraid to talk about immigrant rights and they're lobbying um, for ending the carceral system or not building a new prison or also decarcerating and freeing the 150 or less women we actually have in the Massachusetts Department of Correction. They don't need to be incarcerated, right? So the GBIO, in my opinion, um, has taken literal scripture in thinking about how we stand up for poor people, how we stand up for people when things are not right. But in large part, I believe that um, our black churches, particularly here, um, have a ways to go in terms of making sure that what's outside their doors, mm -hmm. most of these churches are like in Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan. Some have been gentrified out. Um, so there's some churches that now, like we're in the South End, which was a very black community when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, and they've gone to Milton and other places because, you know, the South End, you just, you know, million dollar homes, the churches could not afford to, to remain, but I think it's a missed opportunity. Okay. Yeah, I, I just want to add, and thank you so much for that, uh, Rep. Liz. Um, 
And you were talking about Orchard Park. See, that's where I grew up there. <laughs> I did too. Uh, I played around. <laughs> but, you know, yes, we were in a pandemic before the pandemic. So let's be clear about that. And the church is, I, I get so angry, right? We, we need to reshape. We need a whole, a third reconstruction. I'm thinking mm -hmm. about Reverend Barber, if mm -hmm. I can say that now. Mm -hmm. Every institution needs to get in check. We need to reevaluate where we're going and our accountability to the poor. If we want to go back to a church, we can talk about Jesus, right? A brown-skinned Palestinian man who was lynched. I usually say at Freedom Church of the Poor, a church that we've consecrated during the pandemic, we usually say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, witnessed a public execution the same way we witnessed George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Public execution. And during that, uh, during 2020, we started Freedom Church of the Poor that is made up of the most poor and dispossessed leaders across the country, right? Who are bringing a word to the people and a teaching to the people about restructuring America, mm -hmm. including those that are dis poor and dispossessed, including uh, uh, those that are lying on the street corners, it's like I'm, I'm channeling uh, one of my mentors, Willie Baptist, who says, we could go to church on Sunday, give tithes, but walk over a homeless poor person on Monday. Mm -hmm. Check that out. Also, I, I belong to a group here in Boston that, called the Faith Leaders for housing justice. And it's made up of, of about 40 of us, including uh, Reverend June Cooper. Um, if anyone knows the Reverend June Cooper, phenomenal fighter, um, and, and was the former executive director of the city mission that provides you know, needs and housing for homeless women. Well, the 40 of us have our eyes ears and heart and passion and fight set on what I call the pool of Bethesda. And the pool of Bethesda is an ecosystem and an environment that is made up of, of folks that are hurting uh, on this one mile stretch of land called Massachusetts Avenue and Melania Cass Boulevard, AKA Methadone Mile. I was just out there the other day. We, were, we did a, a, a workshop on uh, religion, homelessness, and public policies. Matter of fact, we are working with some of the black students here at, in, at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And we were passing out flyers and handing out hygiene equipment. We were uh, um, um, items um, right in front of uh, uh, a shelter uh, that houses folks. Very sobering, um, very sobering. But where do we go from here? I mean, what, what, what are the churches doing? There are so many empty churches now 
that, that we can provide at least temporary shelter for folks. I just read in the newspaper the other day that in Brockton, I, I want to say they received 180 million, but don't quote me, so I'll just say 18 million. They, they received 18 million, look it up, do the research, <laughs> cite it for yourself, don't quote me. But it was in the millions to build more shelters. Now I can sit here and, and give you uh, 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 data I could sit here and do a quantitative analysis on all, all of this and be real fancy and talk about other things, but I just want to meet us where we're at right now. That's why, I, you know. Can, can we talk about the shelter industrial complex that would rather provide housing, I mean, shelter for, more, for the poor, 21st century poor houses, rather than providing adequate, decent, affordable housing for women and their families. But we'd rather put this money into building more shelters? I, I, make that make sense. I mean, I know people need a place to stay right now, yeah. but they're Band-Aid solutions. I met, I met a couple of people along my journey that said they were homeless for 20 years. I mean, and I understand, I can clearly understand that people have a multiplicity of, of, of ills, right? Mental health ills, addiction. I understand that. But what happens to the mother that's on the verge of this housing avalanche? Yeah, as a result, right, of COVID. What happens to the average mother on the verge of this housing avalanche that may have to wait? One of my guests uh, that I'm working with called me the other day and she says, Savina, I went to apply for housing and they said, You're, the wait list is 12 years. Jesus. The wait list. So how do we un begin to untangle this web that we've woven with all sorts of bandages? How do we begin to unravel that? Yeah. How, many shelter, uh, how many shelters are on uh, 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 a three-mile strip? Or how many shelters are between Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Maine, and New Hampshire? How many? And how much money do they bring in? And how much are the executive directors making? I know some of them make six figures, mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. our homeless brothers and sisters or our mothers with children are making $15 an hour, if that. If that. So we, I mean, let's, we need to think and unravel and dismantle all of this as we continue to fight these great bills that. <laughs> Yeah, we do. That, and, I, and I think that's the, the part. And so as we close, I want to just have final remarks from the two of you. I, I want to say, um, you know, Set It Off for Me is one of those films, as you said, like it came out when we were the same age. So when we were about 16 or so. And I remember watching this film and just saying, like, there's an old thing like uh, when your back's against the wall, who you going to call? And they say Ghostbusters. Right. And I'm like, I ain't going to call no Ghostbusters. But I knew when my back was against the wall, I could call my grandmother. Yes. When oh, yeah, my back was against the wall, I could call my friend. As my back has been against the wall here at HDS, I could call Tracy. I could call Ebony. I could call Aaliyah, I could call Eve, I could call so many of these women here. And so as we're preparing to, 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 to shift from this, I'm grateful for this sisterhood here. But I want us to know, and I want us, I guess, to, to, to hear from you, 
What are the things that are keeping you hopeful in the midst of this great hell that we're living in? Because to be honest with you, a lot of days I am just like, what is we's going to do? I mean, just really just not understanding. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how I feel, color purple. But then when I, when, I, when I see and I hear stories of people continuing to go forward, that gives me hope. But I want to hear from you. What, what are the, the, who are the sisters? Because I want to bring into this conversation, this is just not a Christian conversation. I want to be clear. I want to bring in Shipra and Pua two of the midwives from the Torah, who if it had not been for them two midwives, there would have been no story of Moses. There would have been no story of the Israelites escaping Egypt. So, so we got to understand that it's just not Christianity. We got, you know, Judaism. We got Hinduism. We got Islam. We got all, we going to need all the, 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 the religions and spiritualities to get out of this hell that we're living in. But I am very clear that there's also this spirituality of, of a sisterhood. Right. that we have so 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 give me some of the ways give us some hope tonight as we are uh moving from this conversation uh that is going to allow you to continue to set it off in the space that you occupy so i'm gonna go a little sad before i go a little bit lively but because uh i am in the midst of my own setting it off you know i am a representative and currently running for senate and the history of massachusetts is that um, there have only been three black women in the entire 300-some-odd-year history that have ever served as a senator in this commonwealth, this great state, supposedly. And so I want to be the fourth. And if I, I win, I also will be the first Cape Verdean woman in the country. And that's a really big deal. Um, there's three things that I said to myself um, as my staff and me were kind of working on what to say today that have led me to... Uh, to do the work that I do. The first is that you can't love something you ignore. And that is really um, the erasure of black women or the, the ignorance toward black women. And, you know, the idea is like, even in a commonwealth like Massachusetts, going into the state house and say, hey, I wanna talk about birthing justice. And they're like, what are you talking about? Or I wanna talk about police accountability. And they're like, black people don't die at the hands of police in Massachusetts. And so, yes, they do. Roxbury just had two shootings last week. Um, is that the idea of this, if they just ignore, then there isn't a problem, right? And that's, that's not true. With love and leadership with love, you actually center on people, not ignore them. The second is that black women did not create the system of harm that is impacting us. That's it. And we shouldn't be held with the burden to dismantle it on our own. That's right. You know, it's like, you know, it's like you're oppressed, but then you gotta you gotta do something about that oppression. Um, because if you don't, then you, we, we must think you like it, right? And the idea is like heavy is the burden uh, in the head that holds the crown. And as black women have constantly in this country been the shields mm -hmm. of so many things, our families and our communities uh, included, that we need allies, we need people yes. to work in the space and hold themselves accountable for the harm uh, that has been done uh, to black people in this country. And namely, when we think about reparations, uh, you know, in Boston, we talk a lot about the fact that eight years ago, the Federal Reserve of Massachusetts released this report that we have $8 of wealth in the black family while white families have 251,000. Mm -hmm. Now, that's been eight years. Mm -hmm. 
five years, three years later, the Globe did a spotlight report. So that's five years. So eight years we've been talking about the same damn $8 and $251,000. And has there been much movement? No. And the pandemic just made it worse. And so the idea is like, we can't fix this problem by ourselves because we didn't create it, right? That's right. And lastly, that you can't do black empowerment in, uh, without the empowerment of black women and centering them. You know, if I look at my district in itself, 62%, and that's what's counted, 62% of the families are head by, by women, mm -hmm. and mostly women of color, because my district is the most of color district in the whole state. So if you have 94% of a district that's of color, and then 62%, that's what's measured, because not every family is going to be measured. Let's just say it's 70. Almost one in three households, or more than that, two out of three households are led by a woman, probably a single mom, maybe with more than one child, trying to make way in a city that is one of the most expensive and has the highest income inequality in the nation, um, with 15 to $20 an hour, when we know it takes over $60,000 to just live in Boston. And Cambridge is no different. So some of y'all uh, maybe living in Arlington or some of wherever is still, do, still too damn high. So that's the bad news. But the good news is when I look at my even growth, like there was one woman and now there are five black women in the state house in just three short years. And every time we put one foot in front of the other, others follow. Uh, we give people the courage, uh, the bravery, and the hope that they can see themselves where we are, right? And that gives me a lot of hope. The other hope uh, that I'm given is just like, people are so damn tired, they're telling the truth. And they don't care <laughs> what people think. It's not respectable. It's, a, it's allowing your anger and your truths about what it's like to be a black woman. And so every time, for example, in the birthing justice space, uh, I'm doing work with women who have lost children at 39 weeks or mm. have lost their siblings or lost someone they love, and, and they're like, this should not be happening anywhere, but particularly in Massachusetts, where we have the supposedly the best medical care, right? This is racism. And so the telling of the truth and being honest about our pain is something that gives me a lot of hope because when I first entered politics, I thought I had to be someone else to, to be accepted, right? I, I led with a lot of the Wellesley and not as much of the Roxbury. And now, in a few short years, I'm like, well, they're not listening anyway. So Roxbury Lizzie's here. Uh, and you're gonna have to listen to her because I know my community best. So you can't tell me there isn't a carceral problem. You can't tell me there isn't um, a problem with immigration and deportation in the Commonwealth because it's, it's, we don't have to look at the board, it's right here. Yeah. And the last thing that gives me hope yeah. is that, you know, we're still a state that educates some of the brightest minds in the world. And what I, whether it's here at Harvard or UMass Boston or Roxbury Community College, yeah. the idea is that if we create a better city where people will actually want to be educated here and remain, mm -hmm. that many of our social ills and problems can actually be led, like most movements, by young people and women, right? And so that they can impart on our cities um, a lot of the change we wish to still happen. So I'm very hopeful, even though I shared some bad data points, but the idea is that I'm so proud that I'm in the Mass House um, and hopefully the Mass Senate at a time such as this, where I know that I'm seeing change happen every day. Um, and so it's not all bad, not bad. but it is, uh, it is definitely inspiring to see um, people all over this country and world step up into their own power. So. 
That's, that's right. good. That's I'll let nice. you. I'll let you say it's not all bad. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't refute you on that. No, sir. Thank you so much. Yeah, I am. I am hopeful. I. Um, I want to thank you all for allowing me to be vulnerable and to share my story. Right, and it is a story of hope. It's a story of fight, plight, and insight, and of many, many people. I'm taking that. And many, 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 I got more. <laughs> and many, many people um, that help to lift each other as we're fighting against this tide. I want to, to lift the, the women of the welfare rights. Yes. Miriam Kramer, I called her name, I say. Yes. Miriam Kramer, the former SNCC organizer, still fighting, yeah. right? That's the hope. I meet with the board of the National Welfare Rights, if any of you all are watching, hey. <laughs> <laughs> These are some tough women yes, warriors in Detroit, out of Detroit, matter of fact, all over the country, the yeah. South, the North, Midwest, welfare rights. I also want to lift my comrades at the National Union of the Homeless, as we're heading into Washington, D.C. with the Poor People's Campaign June 18th to take the fight even further. Yeah. Um, so I just want to lift this network of leaders made up of uh, the Medicaid Army in Philadelphia, right? Uh, these fighters, teachers, we, we always say we, we teach as we fight, we walk as we fight, as we talk and we lead. We're leading this movement, and that's the hope, right? I, I know I represent, I'm one of representing 140 million poor people in this country, as I said earlier, who are fighting, right, this, this fight, right? And that's the hope, and the hope is in all of you, especially our younger students, right, that, that we have a, um, it is our duty, if I can channel and, 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 and repeat right that, Asada, yes. Uh, it is our duty to pass this information mm. on. Mm. As my mentor, Willie Baptist, says, the more you know, the more you owe, mm -hmm. right? And you all can meet me where I'm at, and I can meet with you where you're at, and I can be this little girl from the hood, from Orchard Park, and speak to you all in a way that you will get, right, that deep down grit, that's the hope that we need to meet people where they're at and listen to these stories and that's the hope and i'll the end hope. there I'll and share. you're the hope thank you both so much can we give them both a round of applause um, i just want to say that i am going to be uh, in more conversations with you all because i want to be clear that that this for me, this, 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 this entry point into this issue of poverty around naming poor black women, yeah. I'm grateful for all the names that you yeah. listed tonight. You listed a lot of men um, and, and, and other folks who have been in this struggle, but, but there have been so many poor black women who have given their lives to this struggle that we don't often name. And so that is a part of Set It Off's movement uh, uh, um, ethos, if I would say, is really to help to lift the voices of the women. Yes. 
Because what I am so tired of when I hear history, you know, recalled, we lift the men and we even lift up people who have access to, to privilege and power. But again, I'm always come back to my grandma. My grandma was a woman who she scrubbed floors and, 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 and wiped toilets. She didn't have, I always say, but an eighth grade education, but a PhD in common sense. <laughs> and my grandmother was the one who on her deathbed said to me, now don't you take hold of the freedom plow and then let it go. She knew she wasn't going to see the liberation come into full manifestation, but she knew I was still going to be here. Okay. And so I'm very clear about my grandmother and other folks, yes. her best friend who's here on the other side, and other women, poor black women in this country who have made great strides, we must begin to tell their stories. So I ask even of the two of you, as you go out and you speak, yes. think more of the names of the women here right in Massachusetts, you know them, um, who have been very much on the foreground of making sure that America be what it didn't say it would be, because when they said we the people, that didn't include us. Ooh. But they said, while we're here, we're going to go ahead and make something happen because we built this. So now you're going to make sure we have what we need. So let's make sure the stories of the poor black women in America are told. Ashe, thank you. Thank you all. When things were really, really bad, and I knew that she was under a lot of stress and pressure. I could hear her in there praying and crying out saying, precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired. I am weak and I am worn. And then I hear her say, through the storm, through the night, Lead me on to the light. Precious Lord, take my hand and lead me on. I'm here tonight because of my grandmother. I'm here tonight because my grandmother was a woman she had many trials and tribulations. As I said to you all earlier, she um, didn't have but an eighth grade education with a PhD in common sense. And she was my first theologian. She was the one that told me that God will fix it for you. She also told me that if you love God, you got to love God's people. And you got to take care of them. And so tonight I am here to give the foundations for this movement that I am preparing to launch later this year, but there is no set it off movement without Willie G. Morris. My grandmother, her name was Willie G. Morris, as I just said, her middle name was something she wouldn't tell us. She always just said, it's a G and leave it at that. But I often said, yeah, I know that G stands for gangster. <laughs> Because even at her funeral, the, the pastor said, oh, Sister Morris knew how to get you up off of her. I said, oh, yes, she did. And my grandmother's favorite scripture was, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's Psalms 27 and 1. And so in 2013, when I was in a very low place in my life, when I was 
at the point of almost being evicted from my apartment because I had lost my job. And I did not know how things were going to work out because I was really in a devastated place. I remember calling my grandmother and I said, grandmother, I don't know what to do, I'm lost. She said, you know what to do. Just make it do what it do. And I said, all right, Granny, we're going to figure something out. But in prayer one day, the spirit said, watch, set it off. I said, huh? I said, watch it. Okay, all right, we're going to watch it. And as I watched the film that time, there was something in me that rose up and said, wait a minute. This film is, 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 is hidden to what Jesus did when he walked on the earth. Jesus, when he walked and he set it off, and I'm going to explain how that, that happened, but Jesus, when he was like forced to give up and to back up, Jesus didn't do it. He went all the way. And so I said, okay, God, what you trying to show me? What we doing? What we doing? And so my favorite passage of scripture is Luke 4 and 18 through 19. And the spirit said, read it. And I read it. And this is what it says. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to the house of Bethany, to the protocols, to those made poor by society, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord now, which meant the jubilee, the canceling of all debts. And the spirit said, now keep going. I said, all right. And it said, Jesus said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They said, well, only the Messiah could say that. He said, oh, I am he. And he closed the book. And from that point forward, Jesus, the spirit said, look at it. He began to set it off. He went into the temple and he flipped tables. <laughs> he healed the eyesight of our dear brother, Bartimaeus, who could not see. He stood up for women. Because, you know, they wanted to stone one of the sisters in the Bible because she was committing adultery. But they ain't say nothing about them brothers and how they be sleeping and creeping. But I digress. But Jesus went because he knew that he was on the side, as Dr. James Cone talks about, the side of the oppressed. And he knew that his life, he was sent here to be the one that Isaiah had prophesied about being the one who would follow in the lineage of the freedom fighters in his generation excuse me, in his lineage. And so I said, okay, God, I don't understand fully what you're trying to get me to do, where you're trying to get me to go. God said, I want you to understand that I'm calling you to do something. I want you to understand that you ain't just having to set it off in your own life. I want you to begin to think about ways that you're going to help other people to set it off. And over the years, God began to reveal to me and to show me what this would look like. And I was still like, okay, I'm not getting it. I'm not understanding it. But in 2020, as we marched in Raleigh, North Carolina with the uprisings of the killings of, or the lynchings, let me be real clear, the lynchings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And I was in prayer one day and, and the spirit said to me that there is something, and I wanna, let me stop, even Nina Pop, a black trans woman who was killed in Missouri, because we don't often talk about our trans family. 
And so I kept saying, okay, God, what, what, what are you telling me to do? God said, I need you to go back and look at those notes about set it off. Because we're in that moment right now. And then I had a dream about my grandmother. And my grandmother came to me. She didn't say anything, but she gave me that nod in the dream that let me know that when she would give me the nod, it meant that she was telling me to get myself together. Because in that 2020 period, while we were in the pandemic and we were doing the uprisings and marching and protesting, I was also going through a major depression in my own life. And I was at a place where I was actually looking at, like, I don't want to do this movement work anymore. I'm tired. I'm just over it. I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to quit. But when I seen my grandmother and I thought about the ways that she had to take care of her two brothers, when their mother died at the age of 13, when she was 13, how my grandma had to wash and clean people's clothes and had to scrub floors, had to do all kind of things. And even as when she moved to Michigan with my grandfather, they didn't have anything. We were poor. I mean, in, in the sense of like, we, we, we had what we needed, but we weren't able to fully live in the way that my grandmother deserved to live. And so I said, if grandma could continue to go on and she could continue to, li to live and to continue to fight for justice, because that's what she did, why am I so quick to say I'm going to give it up? And so I cried out to her. I said, Granny, I need you to help me. I need you to show me the way. And so as I began to take time to really be quiet and to pray, the Spirit said, I want you to take time away. And I want you to come and sit with me. And I want you to hear from me and what I'm calling you to do. And that's what brought me to Harvard Divinity School. I didn't need another master's. I don't need no more master's, y'all. These degrees, look. Look, and I don't say that, y'all divinity folks. going to be like, what you mean you here? But what I meant was that I didn't feel like I needed any more school at the time. I already have a master's of divinity. So I'm like, look, you got an MD and what you need another one. But Spirit said, no, you need to go back. And so Reverend Liz Theo Harris, who was one of the co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign, sent me the information for the Religion and Public Life program. And I said, okay, I don't know what this is, but we're going to go ahead and go with it. And I reached out to Dr. Moore. And I said, Dr. Moore, we had a Zoom call. I said, Harvard needs me, and I need Harvard. And I guess she must have said, well, all right, then you come on. And they accepted me and I came here. And so this year has been such a critical point in my life because it has allowed me to sit with set it off to understand that this movement is being called in this moment to lift up the voices and the plight of poor black women. I'm very clear. Because I'm for all black women. That is why we are here today. And I want to honor my dear sisters who are here, Eve, Aaliyah, uh, Ebony and Tracy, we are a collective. Because black women and womanism, we don't do nothing in isolation. We stand together. And so this year, I have been able to, to, to be here and to sit with the fact that I am for the liberation of all people, first black people. But my entry point now God is showing me is that I need to be very clear about the plight of poor black women. And so what I have been doing over this year is I've been having the opportunity to read and to take courses to give me access to the knowledge about how poor black women are actually being treated in this country. 
And so I've had the opportunity to read books from Reverend Carrie Day, Emily Towns, Kelly Brown Douglas, Pamela Lightsey, and many, many more. And so what I want you to know tonight is, is that I got the foundation right here at HDS to build something that I'm still getting revelation on, but I am clear that I am called to start a movement that creates a safe and sacred space for poor black women, that allows them the space to heal, for their well-being to be taken care of, taken care of, and for the liberation that they deserve to come forth. And so that is what we are going to do with Set It Off. This work is going to make sure that poor black women do not continue to be criminalized in this country, just like those sisters were in the movie Set It Off. We're going to make sure that poor black women are seen as fully human and divine. We're going to also make sure that poor black women are always at the table when decisions are being made. Because I don't give a damn about Ketanji Brown Jackson being the new Supreme Court Justice and Kamala Harris being in the White House. Because at the end of the day, if they are not in the positions of power, making sure that the masses of black women and the masses of black people have what they need, they don't need to be there representing us. So it's time out for people just being in positions of representation when they're not making the reality of the poor and dispossessed better. And so set it off, we're going to work to heal the situation for the sisters that we're working with. We're going to help to, build the, to heal the spirit, and we're going to help to heal the system. And we're going to do that through the works of spiritual formation, through the work of projects of survival, and through the works of organizing and advocacy. And so it's a lot to come with that, and I, I am going to put up a link where you all can get more information about this movement, but I am very clear that God has called me to go into areas that are poor and dispossessed, and not for me to come in to be the savior. No, as Ella Baker says, that when people are given a light, they can find their way. And so all I'm called to do is to take this Harvard degree, which is a light. Because most of the time, they ain't going to hear me unless I got something behind my name. But I'm going to take these resources and all the things that I have and take them to communities and allow for the women to come together. Just like my grandmother and her best friend, Ain't Alma, that's the other woman on the other side of my grandmother's picture, who they stuck together. In the darkest times of their lives, they were together. They walked with each other through the hard moments. And so that's what Set It Off is going to do. We're going to build ecosystems for black women, in particular poor black women, let me be clear so that they have the things that they need to thrive and to survive. And so today, I thank you for coming here. I thank you for listening to what we have presented here, and I hope it has been beneficial to you, because I know that we're all busy and there's a lot of time uh, that you all took away from your schedules to be here, but I am very clear that this is just not another movement and this is just not a project here for HDS. This is a call from God. Because I know God has seen the cries of too many poor black women in this nation who are dying. They're dying, y'all. They're dying. Because in this country, if you don't produce 
or if they're not able to exploit you, they will let you die. And we can't have that. And so I'm asking you, HDS, to join me on this journey as I seek to do what I believe and I know that God has called me to do, which is to ring the alarm for poor black women in America. And that means if I've got to speak power to the black church, I'll speak it. If I got to speak power to the Congress, I'll speak it. If I got to speak power to the White House, wherever it may be, I'm going to tell it. Because I know that God is seeking for God's daughters to be free. And that includes gender non-conforming black women, trans black women, non-binary black women, all of us. This movement is going to seek to build a generational movement that allows for when it's all said and done, poor black women will be free. I wish my grandmother could have got that freedom. I wish Aunt Alma could have got that freedom. I wish Fannie Lou Hamer could have had that freedom. And so many other women. But we can't do anything about that now. But we can make sure that going forward, poor black women They live the life they deserve. And so I want them to put up the link. It's already up here. Please log on or click on that to please sign up to get more information about this movement. But I want you to understand, I hope that you came here tonight, not to spectate or just to say what, you know, you, oh, I want to be in this space to see what's going on. I hope that you understand tonight. I want you that you've been in this space tonight to know like when you were in conversation, and you don't see one black woman at the table say something. And also if you in spaces and decisions are being made about folks, make sure you ask them, have you thought about the poor? I want you to know tonight that I, I want you to be an ambassador for this movement. And that means that you even allow for yourself to get more knowledge about the plight of poor black women. How many of you in here know something about the plight of poor black women in this room? You ain't gotta raise your hand. How many of you know something about even somebody who's in your community? Let's not just be woke. But let us get out the bed and do some work. And so I'm going to call my sister Ebony up to come and give us a call to action for the Womanist Club here at HDS. Because Womanist, excuse me, Set It Off is not just going to be a movement that we have across um, this country. It's also going to be right here at HDS. Because it's a shame that in this incoming class this year of 165 students, only three black women were admitted. 
So there's a problem even in these halls of Harvard that black women are not able to have access to the resources that are here. So we wanna ensure that even here at HDS that black women's voices are heard, they are seen, and they are respected. And so we're going to, uh, Ebony's gonna come and give you some information about the Womanist Club and what's gonna be coming up, excuse me, in the fall. And this just doesn't include black women from uh, Harvard Divinity School. It also includes black women from across the campus. So please let women know in HKS, uh, Harvard College, all over, um, that we are seeking to build an ecosystem of black women here at HDS that will help us to continue to grow and to stretch and to build that spirituality of sisterhood that when we go out of these walls, we set it off. Um, thank you all for being with us this evening. We really appreciate you all coming out and taking out your time to be here with us. Um, I'm gonna be up here very briefly. You can go ahead and um, take a picture of this QR code to sign up for the Set It Off movement and also for the Womanist Club. For the Womanist Club, um, if you are a HDS student and you are interested in being a part of the Womanist Club. That is it. <laughs> So my sister Erica asked me to lead us in a closing ritual and I have been prayerfully discerning and asking the spirit and the ancestors what it is that we are to do, how we are to close. And the word finally came and we are to be in silence. We are to honor all the names that were lifted here today, all the names of the black women who have come before us, who have sacrificed their lives, and most notably, Sister Pamela Rush. So we will close this evening with the charge that we have been given on our hearts examining within ourselves what it is we have been called to set off in our lives, to be further equipped to do this work. Go in peace, Ashe. Sponsor Religion and Public Life. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.